My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Good morning, everyone. We've got a great podcast today. I'm interviewing Elise I. Antoine. She is a social worker. She's been in the field for about 15 years. She's a life coach, and she's got a whole bunch of other things going on. We're going to talk about them today. Um, One of the things that brought Elise to me today was the fact that she is the founder and mental health advocate at Rip the Stigma, which is a nonprofit organization that encourages individuals with mental health challenges to speak up and share their stories. Elise has a very personal reason for doing this. She has survived two suicide attempts, sexual abuse, self-mutilization, and an eating disorder. And through her life experiences, her goal has been to transform her clients' lives by helping them discover their inner confidence, purpose, and motivate them to build a legacy. I'm really excited to talk to Elise today. So welcome, Elise Antoine, to the Morning Meeting Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Mm -hmm. I remember meeting you, it's probably a year or so ago, and I had learned about your story from a mutual friend, and I thought you would be a really interesting guest to have on the podcast. I know very little bit about your story, but I know that you've done some amazing things currently, um, probably stemming from some some of your history. So I thought maybe you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and uh, your organization. Okay, great. I'm Elise. I Antoine. Um, I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker for 15 years. Both of my degrees have a bachelor's um, from King University and a master's from Fordham University. I'm also a life coach and I also have um, a nonprofit organization called Rip the Stigma. And this is where we um, in, like create a safe space for people to comfortable to speak up and share their story. I think that's one of the things that is happening that people are walking around suppressing with unresolved trauma and they may feel like they're the only one. So I share my story and also in a lot of events that we create, we create that space where someone can also share their story and just make them feel like they're not alone. And we also provide uh, the purposes to also link people to resources and services so they can get the help that they need. Hmm. I wonder if there's a reason that you thought that sharing your story was so important. (laughs) That's a good question. Mm -hmm. At first, when I got the vision to start Rip the Stigma, I was completely like nervous because, you know, um, I was transitioning from my job, all the social workers were going to be laid off. And I was at a point where it was going to be like the next chapter. So I I was thinking about, yeah, I'll find another job. But then when I felt like, you know, God was telling me to start this nonprofit organization, I thought it was a great idea. But when I felt like he was like, Elise, it's time to share your story. It made me nervous because I've never actually opened up about it. And it was something I was hiding like for nine years, I'm a social worker. I work with people 
So I really didn't know how to allow people to help me. And I didn't know how to ask for help. So I just kept on going. And I think that was one of the things that I felt pushed. I mean, you're starting a nonprofit, but not only that, you really got to be transparent. So being transparent, and I grew up really private, that was the most challenging part for me. And honestly, it just helped me. It made me face my fears and it made me feel a lot lighter. There is a power in speaking up and sharing your story. You feel lighter. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt the night of my launch. um, 2016, I shared my story and all my friends were like, oh, Elise. And I just felt encouraged and loved and whatever I was feeling wasn't what it really was. Wow. So can you share a bit of your story here? What between the months of like September and October, they're really important because September is suicide prevention month and October is World Mental Health Day. So just overall, I'm a two-time suicide survivor. And um I think it's always important to let people know that first, I think people don't understand what suicide is all about. It's a very heavy topic. Um People are very nervous and scared to talk about it. And also, I feel like, um, you know, people are judged like, oh, you're weak or, you know, you get the blame for it or. But it's more to that. If I can really sum it up, um, suicide is really about wanting to eliminate the pain that you feel within. Um, And I think one of the triggers. that I, I know now, but before then I didn't know. It's just like, there were two things. Um, there was one that I was molested and I never really got to talk about it or share. Till this day, I haven't spoken about it publicly, but I finally found a therapist that I can really talk about it. So I feel like I've gotten a chance to really work on it. And my goal was, because my birthday is coming up in November and I'm like, before I turn 40, I would like to have some type of peace with that. So think about it. You're walking around with this trauma. You locked it in somewhere. You don't remember it happened, but you're just functioning like, you know, quote unquote, normal going on with your life. But there's really something happening. And that's what we do. Sometimes we lock it in somewhere. Sometimes unconsciously we turn a switch off on it. So it was somewhere in a box in my brain that I didn't really remember what happened, but it was just like really coming up in different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's through things we watch, music, we hear anything can trigger something, a memory that you've locked in. So that was one of the triggers. And the other thing is that I got divorced, but I never went to therapy. And I'm not quite sure, trying to think about like, why didn't I go to therapy? I think also it was the way it happened. I was very shocked and I, nobody gets married to get divorced. So I was taken back by, so I was really trying to process in the, in the, in the process of processing things, things just started adding up. So the other thing is that I didn't realize I was depressed and that can have really happened that you're so busy and caught up in, or quote unquote, making yourself busy so you could avoid your problems, not to deal with the pain. You can truly just forget about some of the pain that's happening. So that's actually um, what happened. So, um, during my first, um, suicide attempt is when I really realized something, I knew something was not right. Like I just felt off, 
but it couldn't connect. It was almost like there was a split, two sides of me. Of course, I was hiding it. I didn't want, I even hid it from my family. So um, that's another thing that people might think like, not every person may show a sign, but sometimes in listening to what they're saying, sometimes, but some people, you just really can't figure it out. So it's really, really complex sometimes. Um, but it's after that, I had to spend seven days in the hospital and then another additional seven days at the psych ward, which was very helpful. Like people might think it, for me, I really needed that break from the world and from everybody because they take away your phone. You have time to truly think and process. And then my my family, you know, they, they brought up clothes and I had a Bible. So I really had time to really sit with myself and really not avoid, I couldn't do anything. But at the time I was really truly a workaholic. And I think that was the ongoing thing that I couldn't realize that was covering up a lot of the things because I just kept going, moving, working, avoiding. And like I told you, I, I was raised being private. So that played a part because who can you tell if you're not supposed to be telling anybody? So how are you functioning at work? Things never spilled over. I was able to separate, but I just felt like I took on way more than I should have. And that was a lot of stress on my mind, my body, and my spirit overall. So you said like you didn't even realize it, like that you were even suicidal. So you were literally attempting to kill yourself when you were like, hmm, maybe I need help. A text message did save me, but I don't know why, but I sent a text message to a friend. That's how it happened. And that's how he found me. So everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, I just really remember just um, one thing that was very fond that day was that I really prayed. I kept on saying, God, come visit me. That's all I kept on saying. I was like, God, come visit me. God, come visit me. And I just lied there in the bed waiting to not be here anymore. I just, the pain was just way too much. I didn't know how to tell my mom and my brother because we were very close. And for some reason, I felt like it was a burden. And you'll hear that as often, like people will say they feel like a burden. It's really not true, but that's how you feel. And Mm -hmm. another thing is when you're feeling really hopeless and, and sad And at a point where you don't know what to do, there's a tunnel vision where you just don't see anybody else. And death could just be something that you, that's the only option that you see. So um, I realized I needed help after the fact and not up leading to it. Right. Um, And that's what um, like people, family sometimes blame themselves, but sometimes it's not about the family. It's sometimes it's not, like you should have known. Sometimes there aren't signs because I I don't think my family knew anything, but I was really good at playing it off. So that's the dangerous part. Sometimes you won't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why it's so important to develop. Well, first of all, the awareness, you know, that you are depressed right. or, um, mm-hmm. and thank God you were yeah. able to realize that. But then mm-hmm. you have to also develop some kind of skills, some kind of coping tools um, to deal with all of that. So how did you get there? Um, well, I think it's like when the cat is out of the bag, like, boom, okay, Elise, we know now that you're depressed. I know that I'm depressed. Now there's a name attached to it. Cause during the time I was diagnosed with major depression during my first attempt, 
like I was in a hurry to rush back to work. And I was working in, I was working in the Bronx and my main office was the Bronx. And then we would do our training in Manhattan, but the commute just started to get to me. And that was one of the things I found that, you know, Monday through Friday, I wake up super early to get to work. I'm always at work 30 minutes early. And then I would go get my hot coffee and this, but it just became a routine. Doctor appointments, things like that. Doing my hair, it just like, I didn't have any time for me. And, you know, rush hour in, in Manhattan coming down from the Bronx, it just started to become too much. The other, the other thing that you asked a good question, I'm a big fan of therapy. And whatever it takes, if you have to take your medication, you take it. But I'm a big fan of therapy. And if not the therapy yet, you need to talk. You need to let it out in a positive way because we can let it out through drinking, smoking, and what that's going to do. But that's the, that's the negative coping um, mechanism that people often use is through other things to numb the pain. Mm-hmm. But you need a friend that you can really talk to and be like, you know what, I've been going through some things. And I think people do that now still. Like, is that person going to judge me? Is that person going to look at me bad? And unfortunately, we do we do have people who walk away from us because they don't understand. But that's sure. why, you know, having this podcast um, topic and, and, and continue to share my story can sh- shed some light on people who don't know, friends and family, who would push that away. Like you're just crazy instead of saying like, okay, there's really a problem. Mm-hmm. I also think, you know, you mentioned like numbing with like drinking and smoking people numb with other things also like even more subtle things. So they're like, well, I'm not drinking, so I must be okay. But you mm-hmm. can numb with shopping or, oh, you know, yes. exercising, cooking, cleaning, even things that you might think are like good things. Yeah. Sometimes you're using those to numb I too. said work. I was yeah, a workaholic. Work. You're just working all the time. You don't make any time for your family. I mean, anything to numb the pain in any way. So a yeah. lot of times family don't understand why do their family abuse substance. It's not that, oh, the alcohol is so great and, and, and the drugs is great. It's they're just trying to, to really kill the pain inside. Yeah. And sometimes it really gets to them because now you're dealing with two things, an addiction and your mental health. Yep. I think it's so interesting too, like with work, people think working like, oh, she's such a hard worker. Look at her working all the time. So you actually get reinforced in a good way. And that, you know, it it almost stops you from talking, but actually I'm working because I just can't deal with anything else. And sometimes the work is the problem and people have to understand anything to get you, your your goal is to stay alive. So sometimes you have to quit your job because your job is a trigger for your depression and anxiety and whatever that's happened to you, unfortunately, that's what it is. You have to choose you over everything else. I first started therapy in college okay. and I'm very thankful for universities that do have um, the counselors that are there. It's a plus. Yeah. I think, you know, clearly college students, especially right now are struggling um, yes. and counselors want to do for their students. I think they're very under, uh, staffed. So it's difficult to be able to see people consistently and long-term. Mm-hmm. And I think that they can do, um, they could do a lot 
more because that's really needed. Like, I think this is a good opportunity to create that environment. Have somebody come in and, and speak to the class, do some groups. Now we have Zoom. We have different platforms where we can do a lot more and people yeah. who are willing to to really share. Like, um, you know, you do speaking engagement, you charge and stuff. And there are times that you're just like, listen, I just want to share my story a little bit just to inspire one person that doesn't want to um, take their lives or die by suicide or see if we can help save their lives if that's the, the the main goal. But I think that there's so much more that we can do. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know how old you are when you made your first attempts. Oh, um, let's see. I want to say I was like, mm, I want to say I was 28, going to be okay. 29. Yeah. So you did start therapy before then? You were in college. Oh yeah, I had um, I had start therapy like after nine eleven. Okay. After nine eleven occurred, I started therapy. I remember my counselor. His name was Sean. I believe he was Irish. He was so nice, and those talks really helped me process what was going on. And you know, the nine eleven was a big trigger for me. It just really, really. It was like the worst day of the school I had uh, one of my professors that was Jewish who was stuck in New York and couldn't come down classes was up like I mean I wore this beautiful outfit that day and I was just like everything was like everybody was in chaos so after that I shortly started seeing and that was the beginning of me really opening up to a complete stranger um, which I kind of liked somebody being neutral and somebody not knowing much about me Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people might be like, oh, I, I actually like that part of therapy. Like, I don't want to see somebody that knows me. The reason why I do like the fact that they offered it in college is that I didn't have to worry about money. I felt safe. Yeah. I felt That's such safe. a good point, okay. too. Just that, you know, the fi- the financial aspect of it, because so the many financial it's included aspect, in your it's tuition. included. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, um, you know, like me, I see my therapist every week. I pay out of pocket. You know what I mean? I actually technically don't have any insurance, but wow. I have to, if I, I'm feeling I'm at a, at a space where I want to get everything I need. I have a business coach and I have a therapist and, and, and I see people and I, I have to make sure I'm, I'm okay before I'm doing anything. Mm-hmm. So I have to support that because that's an important thing to me. I wish it was a, a, a better way. This episode is brought to you by Inner Harbor, providing grief support to students and those that support them. Find us at www.inner-harbor.org. I also want to thank Abigail and Dan Priest for their sponsorship of an Inner Harbor presentation on grief. We will be able to offer a free presentation to a student organization thanks to their generosity. If you're interested in sponsoring a workshop, please reach out to Inner Harbor. You know, I'm just thinking about so many people that I talk to about mm-hmm. suicide specifically, they, are, they know somebody that died from suicide. I don't talk to a lot of people who have attempted, or at least I don't know that I'm talking to them because I think there's even more stigma attached to the attempt than there mm-hmm. is to talking just about suicide in general. Um, right. And I assume that there's people that I know 
um, who are maybe who are listening that have made attempts or are thinking about attempting, and they don't talk about that. And I'm just wondering, like, what do you think? How do we get people to talk about it? How do we get people to say, I'm really struggling? I'm thinking about suicide. Okay. I'm thinking about killing myself, is really even. That's that's, that's the part right there. I think that um, now is actually having somebody who went through it that they can identify with that. Yeah. Um, And I think what um, we all need to start doing, like family, friends, and we can ask the question. You can ask somebody, do they actually want to kill themselves or do they want to harm themselves? Because yeah. sometimes people feel like if I bring it up, it's going to be in your head. No, if it's in your head, it's already there. But just because you bring it up doesn't mean that you're going to push them to do it more. You're actually confronting it and you might actually like alleviate like them hiding it and just be like, you know, I've been really feeling and they can tell you what they're feeling the listening part has to be important because you cannot put anything like you cannot stuff it and be like well you shouldn't be thinking like that or you that's when you totally lost um that important part that you could have actually you have to listen to what exactly they're saying because they can tell you exactly where it's coming from Mm -hmm. like someone said something there was a bad breakup you know their job, they didn't get that promotion. You'll be surprised why people don't want to continue on. And it's not like it's a specific reason. It could be for any reason. We have young children as 10 who are taking their life. We have teenagers who are the second leading cause of suicide. We have so much work to do. And it's like, we need to confront, we need to talk we need to listen and not be judgmental. Mm. You need somebody to hug you so you could cry on them. You may need to cry and don't know why. Women, men, children, it doesn't matter your religious background or not your nationality. Mental health has no discrimination whatsoever. Yep. Yep. And we just need to be at a point where we just want to be open to listening. Listening mm-hmm. is therapy. It's free therapy. And if you allow someone to speak, you can actually find out maybe what is the root or sure. what's the surface. And mm-hmm. then that can help you to get somewhere. And offering to be next to them. Because I think people get nervous and scared because they don't know what to say. You don't have to know what to say. There's numbers. There's um, you know, a five-digit number that you could text the crisis hotline mm-hmm. and you can text somebody you know you can click on links you can there's so much more things that you can do you can get on a support system um just through zoom they're doing um i'm doing nami act now they're, they have a support system there's, there's more resources out there that are for people even if you feel like because you're black and brown and i'm just thinking because you've made two attempts and i hope that you're never in a place that you feel like you need to attempt that again. But mm-hmm. what have you learned to sort of make sure that that doesn't happen? How have you know okay. with depression, it's not your fault; it just happens. So you could go into another right. depressive episode. Right. And what have you mm-hmm. learned now that you can do to make sure that if you see yourself going down that path, that you get the help that you need? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, like I said, it it took some time to get to the point. But what I did was, um, you know, my family, what I love about them is that um, they love to have family meetings and communicate. So 
you have to be to a place where you have to be open. It's not that you're lying just to lie because I'm not somebody, but you're hiding that dark pain because you feel like you are trying to protect your family and you don't want them to feel the pain. So you're trying not to let them feel your pain. So um, you have to get to a place where you need to be your complete self and just be like, listen, guys, yeah, I've been feeling sad for a while and I didn't want to tell you guys because I felt like I was a burden. And they'll let you know, like, no, you're not a burden. Actually, if you weren't here, it would really hurt us. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking that you're moving yourself to help them, but really it's not the way you feel. So um, communication with your support system, your family, your friends, you've got to be honest with them so they can know exactly what's happening. The other thing is that you really have to set yourself up to get the therapy that you need and and and, and really work on building your skills and 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 really facing yourself because you have to face what's really behind everything. So that mm-hmm. means going to therapy, they give you homework, do it, write in your journal, have a journal, write in it, go to your sessions, um, and 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 just be open and um do affirmations. There's so many different things. But honestly, I'm gonna tell you, there was a couple of things, but my faith really helped me because I had to get to a point where I'm doing devotionals and I'm reading and I'm reading scriptures that will help me. Like, um, I felt like my mind was full. Like I was always putting too much and I was thinking about so much things before. And I'm like, Elise, you got to be mindful, being mindful here now present. What's happening right now? Mindful eating, mindful speaking, taking mindful walks, actually not listening to certain music and lyrics, anything that has things about suicide, I'm really not interested in listening to. And movies that might display some of those as well, I'll skip over and things like that. So there's some things that are really, that are, I feel like that might be a trigger. Another thing is learning your trigger. Right. Uh, because you'll get to know what will get you. So before I probably had a meltdown, as I got better, I learned the skills that can help me less to have a meltdown. It's not that having a flat tire was the end of the world. What I was really trying to say is that, you know, I need to get back to work and I feel pressure because I feel like my supervisor is waiting for, but instead, like I used to just have a full blown meltdown calling my godfather, crying, rest in peace to my godfather. And just, and then they're like, take a deep breath. So as time, like if I get a flat tire, I'm able to step back and look, okay, so what we're going to, it's the panic. It's the yeah. impulsive, it's the inside. It's just thinking about, and it just, it's, it's thinking about things that, are, that didn't even happen yet. Mm-hmm. And that you're overly stressing, you're overly worried. And those are the things that you get to really talk about. And really break them down and learn the skills. Right. So therapy, meditation, um, um, walks. Um, and I actually took a few years to date myself, which I thought was very helpful because I got to learn who Elise was again. I felt like I lost a part of myself. I also felt like there was a part of me that I didn't love that I needed to reconnect with myself. Doing that is a hard work because you have to face yourself and you have to accept where you are right now. And that is a really hard pill to swallow. I think that was one of the hard pills because I was missing the old Elise. But then my brother said something to me. I have two brothers, awesome brothers. One of my younger brothers was like, "Um, Elise, you know, I know you miss the way you used to be, but you, you should love who you are right now. And it just 
kind of dawned on me like, yeah, I miss it because um, we talked, touched about a little bit about the work. One thing that I don't like, and unfortunately we live in a society that's very fast paced. It's like when you have certain mental health challenges, you cannot work in certain fast paced areas. And actually being a social worker, you work, you got a lot of paperwork. Sometimes you even find your own, your own profession may work against you sometimes. And sure. I just, one of the hardest things that I had to realize is that I couldn't handle stress the way I used to. And I'm telling you, I boohoo cried <laughs> over that <laughs> long. But I was like, Elise, do you really want stress? Like, what's the problem? Like, I just, like, I was just like multitasking was it. But we do that now. We overstimulate ourselves. We got the TV mm-hmm. on, got the laptop on, our phones are on. We're doing too many things. And a lot of job descriptions, like, we need somebody who, who could work fast pace, who could multitask. But why am I putting all that pressure on me? So one of the key things that I tell people when you're looking for a job, and if you do have a mental health um, challenge, you got to read the job description. If the job description is overwhelming, honey, leave that job description. Leave it alone, okay? (laughs) If it's three pages of a description, you didn't even get to it yet. My goodness, is that for one person or two? There's little tricks you'll start to realize. I knew that I couldn't work a job that had too much stress in it. Mm One of the things that you said before, I think, too, that was that really stuck with me was the need to communicate. And because some people, you know, when you're really going through a mental health challenge, you may or may not be able to communicate at that point. You have Mm -hmm. to do it when you're healthy. So, you know, some of the things I've learned about you already is like when you're not doing well, you might look like you're working too hard. Um, And maybe you've told that to your family so that they can watch out for you so that they know what some of the signs are when you are like, Elise, I noticed that you're working 12 hour days for the past three weeks, (laughs) you know, something's up and I'm worried about you, but it's like a good, it's a trigger for them to know, to check in on you. Absolutely. You, you actually hit it right there. That wasn't the example. Like I had three jobs. I had to tone it down a little bit. But um, yeah, I stopped being a workaholic because I realized that I was really trying to put everything into my work. But one thing I had my family do that really worked with me. I said, guys, you may ask me a question. Like I said, if you ask me a direct question, I will give you the truthful answer. Mm. So I'm always like, if you be like, um, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. But if you ask me on a scale one to 10, how am I doing? That was their way of knowing where my stress level was. Mm-hmm. So another question, what are you doing right now to take care of yourself during this multiple pandemics that are going on in the world? How do you maintain your own sanity and mental health? My my weekends are important because I really try to mindfully do something. And, um, you know, I, I go to, I, like I do therapy mm-hmm. once, um, once a week and I, have a life, um, I have a life, co- a business coach that I meet with most likely once a month. Um, and I have like team meetings with my nonprofit. So I keep myself good busy, but also I make sure on the weekends, like sometimes I just have like, my Sundays are very quiet days. I tend to like, not to like to go out and I do things that I want to do, like watch movies, watch my lifetime, you know, little <laughs> things like that. I love movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, just treating myself like I I really like to reward myself. And I do use a planner and a to-do list that ca- helps me keep me organized. 
Um, it's like the structure. I need structure to really. It's almost like you're you're working, you know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's not to make me feel like I'm accomplished, but I get to see what I what I need to do, what I'm working on, so I don't miss anything. So yeah, you have to know. You that's what I'm saying. You got to get to know you. You got to sit with yourself. You got to get to know you and to work on something that works for me. So um, I'm planning a fashion show right now. I'm I'm meeting. I'm doing different things. And this month, I'm doing different speaking engagement. So I'm really trying to take it easy. And then, um, so yes, definitely rewards, little things that I want to do, spend time with my family. Um, just little things that I think will be good. I think that's a really important Mm -hmm. point too, about the structure, just because with the pandemic, there's been so much less structure in our lives. Um, it's important to figure out how to have some. So, um, how can people find you if they're looking to learn more or want to get involved in some way? Okay. Well, they can learn to find me because I have my life coaching business and I have my website um, at www.eliseiantoine.com. Also, my nonprofit organization, Rip the Stigma, is at www.ripthestigma.org. I'm also on Instagram at Elise I Antoine, also Rip the Stigma at Rip the Stigma on Instagram. So follow us. I just feel like if you're given a second chance at life, it really means that you're there's a purpose and you can really help so many just with your presence. So I'm always looking to honor suicide survivors. So I love to know because when I have I'm like racing around trying to find some so listen, if you ever want to be honored in the future, I know we're doing our virtual fashion show. So per se, we're not going to honor any suicide survivors within that capacity, but we have other events to come. Please send me a message. I would love to just have a list of people just to honor you and just let you know that you're not alone and you yeah. know, just pass the baton to anybody else who's struggling. That's beautiful. And I, I know that for every suicide, um, for every actual suicide, there were 25 attempts. So there's a yes. whole bunch of people out there who have made mm-hmm. these attempts. Um, and I think what you're doing is beautiful. So I hope Thank they contact you. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks for being you. part of this. Thank you so much to Elise for being on the podcast today. And as always, to Stephen Bluestein for audio production. Next week, we're speaking with Lisa Gittleson. She is an amazing woman who has been born into a family doing social work and social justice. She's an attorney working for the Council of Family and Child Care Agencies, advocating for the welfare um, of children in New York. We're going to talk a lot about foster care and what that's like for children who are aging out of the system, heading to college. A really interesting conversation. I'm super excited to talk to her. So join us next week for that. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.